Hey there, beer lovers. Welcome to season two of the Pints and Perspectives podcast hosted by Wellhouse Church. This is the show where certain things are fixed, such as the essentials of faith and the best beer is served on tap, while everything else is just a matter of perspective. What's cracking, beer lovers? What's up? How we doing? We doing good. It is New Year's Eve for us. Um, oh, it is New Year's Eve. It is New Year's Eve. Mm-hmm. Almost Happy New Year. Almost Happy New Year. For now, you, it's not. For you guys, it's well into the New Year. Yeah, it's like <laughs> January fourteenth. Yeah, um, we're we're still on this side of it. There's still a Christmas tree up right there. Um, yeah, my Christmas <laughs> tree is still up. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, but because um. There were so many beers um, in our Advent 12 days of Christmas beer thing. We still have beer left over. Yep. Um, so we're going to, in this episode and in next week's episode, finish up the Clown Shoes uh, Christmas uh, beers. Yep. So, yeah. Um, do you want to talk about yours first? Uh, no, you go ahead. Okay. Are you looking yours up? Yep. Okay. So I've got the Clown Shoes Clementine White Ale, um, brewed with coriander and other natural flavors. Um, the other natural flavors thing make me a little bit nervous. I'm not yeah, gonna lie. that that's sus. We've not seen that yet. Um, that's typically not a good sign. Um, I but, or or. It can be a good sign because it's some kind of proprietary blend that they don't want you to know what it is. It could be. It could be. Um, but typically, if you look on a can and it says natural flavoring. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's not really good. It's, it's one of two things. It's really a not good thing or they're using it to try to mask an ingredient bill. Right. Um, it's 5%. Um, so I'm excited. Uh, we, we Googled what a white ale was before, haven't we? Do we remember what that is? I don't remember, but I'm sure it's going to be, my suspicion is that it's going to be, oh, it's a wheat beer. Yeah. Okay. That, that was going to be my guess, yeah. but I was unsure. Yeah. Um, it was it was my guess too, but I wanted to be sure. So I'm expecting um, that this is going to be really reminiscent of like a blue moon, because um, the Clementine thing, yeah, 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 like yep. orange flavors. Yep. What's your lore? I don't have any. There's clown shoes hanging on the tree, but that's it. Oh, clown shoes. I'm a little disappointed. That's the first one we've had that didn't have a lore with it. Yep. Look it up. While I talk about mine, look it up and see if there's you can find lore on like their website about it. All right. So mine on the can doesn't have any lore either, except that it's clearly a superhero. Yes. It's called the Space Cake, but it's clearly a superhero. And this is what the lore says on their website. 
Being pursued by a giant assortment of laser-equipped cupcake spaceships is many things, but it is certainly no time to panic. Miracle Mike and his galactic canine Bionic have been through far worse, and they always seem to find a way past the relentless pursuit of the space cake fleet. So, fun, just kind of random lore that they created and made up. It's a it's a uh, a double IPA, which if you don't know, I love. Um, the tasting notes are it says this double IPA features robust hop aromas that carry through to the strong juicy flavors of tropical citrus. A sweet and strong malt backbone pairs with a subtle booziness to make space cake an approachable DIPA, double IPA, fit for an extraterrestrial odyssey. Interesting. Which, if you don't know, we record this in a suburb of Houston, and it's actually a great day for a double IPA because yes, it's new year's Eve, but because we're in Houston, Texas, it's also 75 degrees outside. Yeah. So it's like, okay, cool. Um, beer details, 9% ABV drink responsibly kids. Yeah. Um, hops are mosaic and citra. Nice. Um, I cannot find anything about this beer on their website. Man. Other than that it's in this pack, but I can't find anything else. Mm. Um, I'm a little disappointed. That's the first one we've had that was not lore-based, which I guess kudos to them that every other one of their beers are lore-based. Yeah. But you yeah. could have done something. And there probably is something, and we just can't find it. Yeah, they, they probably have some story about it. Because, I mean... All of their beers have been that they create. They tell a story and they create a universe. Yep. Um, so there's got to be something here with this Clementine tree. Yep. And the clown shoes hanging. But I have no idea what it is. All Anyways, right. cheers, cheers, buddy. Yeah. Ooh. That's exactly what I was expecting. Mine's not what I was expecting. Hmm. Um, oh, mine's super good. Um, wow. Mine may be my new favorite double. Oh, wow. Um, what, That's high praise. What's your problem with most doubles? Uh, too bitter. Too freaking bitter. There, there's a bite on the end. They're they're real bitter, and literally, it's like hop explosion in your mouth, mm. and then the ash that's left in the air is malt. Uh, yeah, kind of. It's like a but, hop bomb. That yeah, and and what happens with that amount of hops? Does it actually draws the the moisture out of your mouth? Yep. Um, which for some people that's a draw. Yep. But I feel like I have to take a sip of a double and then ha take a sip of water. Yep. You know, like. I, um, yep. And I and I, I kind of gravitate towards doubles that have some kind of fruit adjunct to them. Right. That Because that kind of helps cut that. Makes it more fun. Um, yeah. Like, like a quintessential 
double that would fall into this category is the double down by St. Arnold. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like very quintessential double that yes. fits that category to a T. Absolutely. Hands down. This has none of those. Interesting. Great balance. Hmm. Love it. Very, very hop forward, mm-hmm. but great balance. Very little bitterness. Hmm. Interesting. In a double. That's very interesting. And I think it's because the mosaics. Right. Yeah. So, what's your rating? 8-1. Wow. Like, it's really good, dude. Love it. So, I'm not a wheat beer person. Yeah, I'm not a wheat beer person either. Um, It it was interesting because whenever I was living in Belgium, um, I, I didn't like it initially. Because I was used to American beer, it's yeah. malt forward. Yeah, um, and then I got there, and it was it was wheat. It's really sweet, and yeah, um, it's really light. Yeah, but I got used to it. Yeah, um, and I grew to really like them. Then I came back over here and stopped liking it again. <laughs> yeah. Um, as wheat beers go, this is a really good one. This was exactly what I was expecting. Um, it was. It, I took my first sip. It. Re- I felt like I was sitting in a cafe uh, in Antwerp again. Like, that's what it felt like. Um, so for the, the the memories that it brings, it's really cool, and I like that. Yeah. It's nostalgic for it's you. It's nostalgic. But the actual flavor profile, kind of meh. Yeah. Um, I'm sitting at like a 5.9. Yeah. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah, I I could see that. I could see that. Um, no, that's just my palate. That's right? just that's just you not being a person who typically likes wheat beers. Yeah. As wheat beers go, this is a good one because I've had and drank many of them. Like I understand this is a good one. Yeah, it's just not my thing. Yeah, technically, shouldn't we be calling it a wit? Uh, or the, could we be calling it a wit? Yeah, you could. Depending yeah. on, I mean, you could, but then there's different ways to talk about it but yes that is one it, way to talk it's, about yes this. categorically it's a wheat or a wit or a, a wheat. Oh, oh yeah 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 yeah. well if, if it's dutch yeah yeah, yeah. if it's yeah. dutch it's wheat. but it's not it's from boston <laughs> <laughs> yes fair enough okay fair enough. so let's engage some theology I, i'm super stoked about this now before we introduce our new series that we're going to be spending Probably quite a bit of time in. My suspicion is that that we'll be in this series for quite a while. Yeah. Um, And we're calling the series Engaging Theology. And before I talk about the series, I have to say, I'm very biased in this. Um, My book, my name is recorded in this book. Uh, This book is written by two of my college professors. Um, I helped edit and give feedback to this book. I'm very in favor of this book. I like I want to go ahead and say like bias on the table. I am a fan of this book. But honestly, it's a really good book. It's and, fantastic. And book. you should buy it. it. It's a fantastic book. Uh, if you can get your hands on it, you really should buy it. It's a really good book. I bought this one. I bought mine on Amazon. Why did not mine? I don't, the sticker's gone now, so I don't. I think I bought it. I know for a fact I bought it at Half Price Books. Yeah, and I think I got it for eleven ninety nine. Okay. Now it broke Ben's heart because 
He I, it was at half price books. Yeah. Um, but Ben, I gave feedback and you didn't give me a free copy. So, you know, that, that, that now makes three books of yours that I've helped edit and give feedback to of which I did not get a free copy. So looking at you, my guy, um, I'll buy your stuff at half price. <laughs> it's, it's <laughs> That's so spiteful. No, no. Ben gets it. Ben gets it. He, because what he does is he goes and buys them all up at half price too. Everyone he finds. And then when he goes and speaks somewhere, he just makes them available for sale. Like just out of his pocket. Interesting. Yeah. So he gets it. He gets it. But he's also a book nerd. So interesting. Anyways, a few years ago at HBU, where I did my undergrad and my first master's, they had a class that you that everyone had to take because it's a, a private Christian liberal arts institution. Everyone had to take a class, and I think it was called um, Texts and Traditions. I think is what it was called. You had to take New Testament, Old Testament, and Texts and Traditions. And it was like, it was basically like an introduction to church history. Mm. Um, the problem was there weren't really any good books for it. The one I used, Clayton uh, scoot over. The one I had to read when I took this class was by A.J. Conyers, and it was just called A Basic Christian Theology. Um, in an attempt to be kind, it was I. Right. If I'm being honest, the book kind of sucks. Yeah. Um, for the goal that HBU was trying to accomplish, the book kind of sucked. Yeah. Not the book is fine, like it's a fine book. It just didn't fit with what the goal of the class was. Mm, got you. I've had classes like that. Yeah. And so, because Ben and Randy, the two professors, the two authors of this book, commonly taught this class, they were like, hey, let's write a book that better fits what we're trying to do with the class. Yeah. And what they're trying to do with the class is teach you not only what the church has done throughout history with theological advancement, but also the ways in which we as Christians engage theology, right? how we interact, how we do theology, how we build theology, how we live out theology, how that impacts faith and practice and conversation and all of these things. And so they wrote a book titled Engaging Theology with the subtitle, a biblical, historical, and practical introduction. So that's the book that we're going to go through because what I was looking at doing is I was trying to think about what I wanted to do for the new year to start the new year. And one of the places my mind went was I want to do something, like I want to give people a way of like, theological method like how to do theology right um and like my mind immediately went to the first chapter of this book mm -hmm. and then i was like well dang 
if I'm going to do the first chapter of the book, Might as well just do we've the got thing. a ton of new listeners here. Right. Wellhouse has grown quite a bit over the last year, uh, year and a half. Like maybe it's valuable to just do an entire like introduction of theology conversation on this podcast. Mm-hmm. So Joel of our, which we, we, we kind of have done in pieces um, we have, and I'll refer to some of those episodes right. where we kind of talk about them and other things as we go through. And as I mention them, I'll link them in the show notes or tell you how to find them in the show notes kind of thing. But by and large, um, I thought it'd be good to do like an introduction to the theology conversation. And so that's what we're going to do. And we're going to call the series engaging theology. And, One of the things I love about Ben and Randy's approach in this book is they open, and this is what they say, while obvious to some, others will be unclear about what theology even means. The word derives from the Greek term theos. Medieval theologian Thomas Aquinas captures the heart of the task well. Theology is taught by God, teaches of God, and leads to God. One of my qualms with a lot of theology and conversations around theology is for however we've gotten here, it actually isn't about God at all. Yeah. So much of it doesn't have anything to do with God. Right. Ben and Randy are putting the conversation firmly rooted back into a conversation about God, mm-hmm. but not in a classic Baptist indoctrination way. This is what they say. Our goal is to give you a starting point for further study and conversation. We follow the model of an early Protestant theologian, Rupertus Meldinus. I did not know that he was the guy credited with this statement. Mm -hmm. However, this statement is one of my favorite statements about theology and theological truth. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. Okay, explain what that means. Okay, so what they mean is in essentials, unity. The things that oh, are things re- that matter. The things required to be a Christian. We agree. Unity. Yeah. In non-essentials, everything else, liberty. Yeah. Freedom. Mm. You do you. Love it. Anything that remember our remember my yeah. metaphor. So we did our our opening series on this podcast is about the creeds. Right. And through that series, I used a metaphor of a lake. Yep that the creeds are the boundaries of the lake and whatever activity you can come up with to do inside the lake, Mm -hmm. all fair game. You do whatever you want to do. We get a little iffy when you leave the lake, Mm -hmm. when you get outside the boundaries of the water. The lake is essentials. In essentials, unity. We're all doing these activities together. Yeah. Or sorry, we're all playing in the same field. We're all playing in the lake. In non-essentials, liberty. If I'm snorkeling, 
and you're jet skiing. Mm -hmm. Cool. High five, bro. More power to you. Go about our ways. In all things, liberty and freedom, you do you. As long as we're all in the lake together, praise Jesus that we're in the lake together. Mm -hmm. And in all things, charity, charity, whether, whether we're in agreement or not in agreement, we're going to be charitable to one another. Yeah. That, that is one of my favorite theological statements of all time. In mm. essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. That is what this podcast is. Yeah. Pints and perspectives. Like it, that, that statement fully encompasses what the heart and mission and vision of this podcast is. Right. Which we were talking about. When, when we wanted to start this podcast over a year ago now, it's crazy to think about. Um, and we were wanting to do some sort of theology thing. It was really important to us because we grew up in traditions and in spaces, really, um, where, you know, theology ends in very heated arguments. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's because there's only one correct way. Right. To do theology, my way, right? Whoever, whoever the person whoever talking the my is, is. My, my way, right? And, and that's just so unhelpful, and it, it it ends up hurting relationships and 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 pushing people further away from the essentials yep. of faith. Yep. Um. And so we wanted to give a space where we could do that. Yeah. Um, and the way that you do that is like a pub room conversation. Yep. Um, and so that is what this podcast is. 1000%. I I love that actually. Yeah, it's great. And so what they say is the goal for this book is to explore the intersection of all sides of theology, the biblical narrative that communicates the story of God the systematic exploration of theology via the triune lens of the Nicene Creed and the challenge of practicing faith. That's really unique to this book as an introduction to theology book. Very few people are approaching it with the practical element of what does it mean to not just build theology and have theology, but to live out and practice faith via the the, the theological conclusions that you've come to. So that's what they want to do. They have a section in here about practicing faith. Um, And for time's sake, I'm going to skip it. This is all in the introduction to the book, by the way, if I didn't say that. There is kind of a a couple of pieces that I want to walk out because it's important as we go through the book that you understand how the book is laid out. The book's going to take place, each chapter is going to take place in four different conversations or in four different sections of the conversation. And just for instance, there are 10 chapters of actual content, Mm -hmm. like theological content and categories, Mm -hmm. of which I think most of them are going to take more than one week to talk about. Um, And so the conversation is going to take place in these four categories. Story, 
Each chapter is going to begin with a story of a historical figure in the church and how their life embodies the truth of the theological claim that we're going to talk about. Then there's going to be some doctrinal exposition, but the focus in the doctrinal exposition is going to be focusing on areas of ecumenical agreement. They highlight core and debated elements while clarifying heterodox perspectives. Heterodox position. So orthodox would be right belief or right practice or sorry, no right belief. Heterodox would be wrong belief. Right. So in my metaphor of the lake, their word heterodox would be anything that happens outside the lake. That's outside the boundaries of the creeds. Mm. That's heterodox. Contemporary theological relevance. So this area, they're going to bring in culture. They're going to bring in modern theologians. They're going to bring in what is the conversation around this theological topic today? And how is this impacting conversations in our contemporary lives? And then their final one, which I think is the best contribution to the book because nobody's doing this, is what does this mean for you as a practitioner of faith? How do you live this conclusion out? Hmm. Now, they, in great Ben Blackwell fashion, spend the next majority talking about of the book, talking about their conversation partners. And I'm going to email Ben and see if I can get a copy of this somehow. But they're going to root everything in church history the way it's been practiced, how it's been developed, all of these kinds of things. And so if you're watching on YouTube, this map, this is a map of church history. I have had to memorize this map for tests, final exams, quizzes. That exact map. That exact map. Probably six different times. Okay. Because in almost every theological class that Ben Blackwell teaches, not only will that map come up yeah. more than one time, you will also be tested on it at least once. Because he really wants you to know this map. Because it's an easy way to remember and understand church history. Now, we didn't always have to have this big detailed one. Sometimes we could just have this little one. Right, okay. But... They want, they want you to really think about theology and the way theology develops through the course of church history and what's happening in church history. And so the way that Ben and Ben, this is Ben's map, um, the way that Ben breaks it up is he breaks it up into the patristic era, which he says is from the year 100 to f- like really, what does he say, Four, um, 476. Um, is when the patristic era ends, and that's with the fall of Rome. Okay. That's why 476 marks that. It's the fall of Rome. Now, why does he start at 100, Clayton? Good question. I don't know. When's Jesus born? Jesus is born... (laughs) Somewhere around, like... It, it was not at zero. It's AD. not at zero. It's not at like, zero. And it's sometime after. It's like 
within the first hundred years or so of of AD or current era, um, correct? Not quite. Four BC. Oh. Four BC is most likely when Other Jesus direct. is born. Okay. Four BC, um, which would put his death at when? Um, four BC. He dies at 33. He dies at 33. Clayton's not good at math. I'm not a math. I'm not a math. <laughs> 29. 29. He dies at 29 CE, current era. Cool. Um, Sounds good. So why does this map not start at 30? Oh, because the Bible is still being written. The Bible is still being written. So most people, most people are comfortable having all of the New Testament being completely written by the year 100. Mm. There are some people that want to push the Gospel of John and Revelation out past that. Mm. They're the minority. Yeah, you're pushing pretty far out there. Well, there's pretty good evidence to think Uh that... um, But there's pretty decent evidence, specifically with John and Revelation. There's decent evidence to think that it could be happening, hmm. um, that that could happen. Um, specifically with Revelation, there's some things happening in the letters to the churches that is questionable whether or not they had already happened yet in those cities. Mm-hmm. And if they had already happened, you have to date them after like 110 mm-hmm. but because it's an apocalypse and a prophecy i think probably 10 years earlier is an acceptable place the gospel of john really the reason people want to date it out past 100 is because it's just so theologically advanced and it's beautiful and the way it's constructed it, it just would have taken a long time to write mm-hmm. um and very few th- people think john actually wrote that single-handedly by himself. Um, Most people, I think at this point, if you're not in fundamentalist traditions or given over to fundamentalism in a different tradition, most people think that a community of John and his followers Mm. wrote this and put it all together and kind of did it, which probably means Polycarp, apostolic father, Mm. had a piece in writing John, or at least was around when it's being written. And that would make a lot of sense because... A lot of their language and phraseology is pretty similar. Um, but I'm comfortable putting John at before 100 because Polycarp still would have been alive and around. Mm-hmm. So, And the other side of that is Polycarp could have just been influenced by John rather than influencing John. You get what I'm saying? Yes. So um, That makes sense. So most people are comfortable saying the Bible's completed by 100 or cool. like all of the New Testament's done by 100. Cool. So Ben starts the map at 100 and goes to 476 with the fall of Rome. That's the patristic era. Right. And what happens in the patristic era is lots of things. <laughs> let's let's figure out how to be the church. Yeah. Like what does this mean now? Because what you have to remember is Christianity is a new religion mm. born out of Judaism. Right. They have to build it. Yeah. They have to construct it. 
That's why Paul and Peter can be in combat about what it means to be a Christian because, because nobody knows. Yeah. They're trying, trying to, to figure it yeah. out. That's what's happening in the patristic period. Then it goes from 476 to 14 what what, what is he doing here? It Oh, it has to do with the fall of um Constantinople in 1453. That's the okay. end of the medieval era. Okay. And this is when the church is living out the church. This, I mean, they're still kind of working some things out. Like there's still councils and things happening. Um, but the big thing that happens in this one is in 1054, you have the great schism, right? The great schism is where the Greek Orthodox church or the Byzantine church and the Latin West church or the Roman Catholic church. Split. Well, they excommunicate one another. Yeah, yeah. So they split, but they, they both say we reject you as the church and you're not the church. We're the church. You're not. And so they go their own ways. And, Unfortunately, fortunately, unfortunately, I don't know, something. A thing happened. A thing happened, and the Roman church kind of takes over. Yeah. I would argue for no other reason than they're the Western world. Right. And the Western world took off faster and more rapidly than the Eastern world did. Right. That's the only reason I think that Roman Catholic is the like one of the biggest um, spiritual traditions mm. in the world is because they were the largest one in the Western world, which right. grew rapidly. Right. I mean, that makes sense. The Greek church is great. Yeah. The Byzantine church is great. Fantastic. Mm. They both baptize infants. They do. Yeah. And actually, if you were going to be true to the Bible... Mm-hmm. You should. Yeah. <laughs> but like, I just, I just pissed a lot of people off. But like, but if you read the text, like, that's not what I was gonna say. But, but, but if you read the text, that's so funny. That's so funny. Um, they both baptize infants, but if you actually read the Bible. And Romans 6, and the participation of the burial and resurrection of Jesus, um, the Greeks do it right. Mm -hmm. The Romans do not. Um, you got to dunk. Yeah. So in you the ever, Roman Catholic Church, they just do the sprinkling. Yeah, yeah. Y'all ever seen that meme oh my uh, of the, 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 the priest? Taking the baby, he dunks his feet in, flips it over, dunks the head, and does it another time. And the baby's screaming. It's hilarious. So that's only one way they do it. Right. Um, there are some Greek Orthodox and actual big O Orthodox tradition that literally there's a big, like a big cylindrical vat or pool or something, and the priest literally fully submerges that baby. Fully submerges that baby just till its head goes completely underwater and then immediately pulls it out. And of course, the baby is like screaming bloody murder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But yeah, yeah. they was dunked. Yeah. They died and resurrected with Jesus. Yeah. They participated fully. Yeah. They weren't just sprinkled with the truth. Mm, they, I'm, I'm just saying. They were so dunked. Like, 
there are some really good things that still exist in the Eastern tradition that like shouldn't be forgotten. Yeah. Now, then from about 1500 on, or 1476, when the fall of Constantinople, is it 1476? I always forget that. 1453. I was it's never. Like 1476, that was real early. That's still. No, for, yeah, 1453. Yeah. Um, which really is a kind of a great marker because it's the beginning of the Renaissance. Right. And for anyone who thinks that the Renaissance did not play a part in church history, yeah. you're just wrong. You're missing a big thing. Why do you think some of the greatest Renaissance art is in churches, chapels, and have spiritual truths? Yeah. Because they were they were they communicating were, they were with one another. Yeah. Which, and a lot of deconstruction happened in that time, too, um, because that's where we get, like, humanism. Through, yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so well, and romanticism comes right after. Right. And, and so there's people rejecting mm -hmm. the truth of Scripture and leaning more towards this direction as well. Yes. Um, That's very so true. Big, big things are happening. Yeah, yeah, very big things. And one of the next great markers, and notice, man, I'm really going to try to find this, and I'll try to see if Ben will let me embed it as a Google Doc or something um, so that you can pull this map up, listeners. Because what you'll see is... There's a division between the, the Greek East Church and the Latin West Church in the map. Right. Notice from the time the Greek Church splits from the Roman Catholic Church, they never have another They never union. have another split. They yeah. never have another schism. They are 100% unified moving forward. Interesting. Look at the way we have fractured the hell out of the church. Yeah. And between the Catholic and the Protestants. Yeah. Yeah. So 1517, Martin Luther nails the 95 theses. We get the split. We get like the difference between Ro Ro Protestant and Roman Catholic. And then from Protestant, oh my God. We've got countless. Uh, yeah. It can go, I mean, now that we have the non-denominational churches, like it can go endless different ways. Yeah, I think uh, they say the Protestant church um, consists of a huge variety of groups and subgroups. Yeah. The main groups include Baptist, Methodist, Pentecostal, Presbyterian, Anglican, Episcopalian, non-denominational traditions. Like, and they only hit seven of them. Yeah. And there's so many more. Yeah, so many, more. so many more. So, and we just fractured the mess out of it. And then Pentecostalism comes in in the 1900s and takes the world by storm. Yeah. They actually have this great quote that I noted. Perhaps the fastest growing religious movement in history is the global adoption of Pentecostal and charismatic theology, which arose around 1900 and crosses denominational lines, even influencing Catholicism. Yep. All, all true statements. Yeah. So you have these now you have these three branches of the church beginning in the 1500s you have the protestant you have the roman catholic and you have the eastern orthodox yep. which includes russian greek um a bunch of things lots of lots of a bunch of things lots of different ethnic groups and, yeah. but beginning in 1650 to the present and this is something huge that listeners you need to understand there begins to be philosophical movements. And so 
This is something that I say all the time, and I think everyone... I think I actually got this from Roger Olson, um, who is now Professor Emeritus. Congratulations, Dr. Olson, for retiring um, in, at the end of this last semester from Truett Seminary at Baylor. But philosophy has always been theology's main conversation partner. Mm-hmm. It has to be. In 1650 and beyond, there begins to be a major shift in philosophy in which there's kind of a universal vein of philosophical thought, and it's called modernity Mm -hmm. or the Enlightenment, which is really given over to objective truth and secularism. Right. Think of, and it goes from 1650 to 1900 in their book. It, I'm not sure it actually extends out to 1900, um, I think it may extend a touch further. I think maybe they're being a little bit generous just because of like the simplicity of making 1900, Mm -hmm. like making modernity go for 150 years or sorry, 350 years. Um, I, I'm not a hundred percent sure. I, I, I don't think that's the perfect line. I think it's a fine line for the, the map. Um, but, um, Think about all the things that happen from scientific. Yeah. You've got evolution. You've got the Scopes trial that comes up. Like you've got you got all these things that happen as a as a result of modernity that are all science forward and secularistic in thought, or right. or given over to secularism. Well, then of course, what do we always do in history? We swing the pendulum, right? So. Out of the Enlightenment and modernity, we fall into postmodernity, which is the exact opposite. <laughs> totally given over to subjective truth. Yep, and one hundred percent given over to the individual. Yep. And it doesn't like, matter what you believe to me because I believe this, and your belief has no impact on mine. And tradition doesn't matter anymore. Yeah. So. You kind of need to know that landscape because that's the world that they're going to talk about things through. That's the lens through which they're going to view these things. And so you need to know that map. I'm going to try to link it. I'm going to try to find a way to link it or something so that you guys can have access to it. Yep. I still think if you're going to follow along for this series, like it'd be good for you to buy this book. Please, um, yeah, do that. You should treat the next... 10 to 20 weeks. I haven't finished outlining all the content. You should treat the next 10 to 20 weeks as like a book club. We're yeah. going to be going through this book together. Yeah. Um, and, and I actually have a copy. I didn't bring it with me. Um, whenever I well, was we're just doing here. the introduction. We were just doing the introduction. So it didn't really feel important for me to have it, but, um, you, you'll see me here doing the same thing. This, these next few weeks are going to be, Really interesting. Yep. But like book club, we want to hear from you guys. Yep. And we want to hear your thoughts. Um, we have Facebook community groups that are linked down below um, and in the show notes. Um, we um, also have a comment section on YouTube that, you know, that's engagement, bro. <laughs> and and in this new year, we're changing some of our social strategies. Yeah. So be sure you're following us on social media because every day one of these goes out, at least once that day, there will be a post 
about this podcast in which you can comment, like, DM us, mm. all engage with us about the content on the social post. Yeah. Anyways, so I'm really excited for this series. I think the series is going to be a whole lot of fun. Um, and I hope that you guys are excited too. So follow along with us. In the words of Ben and Randy, let's engage theology together. <laughs>